So I'm going to try something a little different tonight, starting tonight. Uh, you see there's a schedule for the rest of the year. Uh, this is, instead of doing a verse-by-verse -verse study through a particular book, we're going to look at the books of the Bible that we never read. And I call it uncharted territory. Obviously, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I, when I was thinking of the title, I thought about the opening of every episode of Star Trek. You know, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Uh, obviously, that's not the truth. Most of us, probably most of the people in this room, have read all of these books at one point or another. But I'd say most Christians haven't. And even those who have probably did it years ago as part of a read through the Bible in a year strategy and they read it really quickly and it was just, I, I've done this before. I did this, I've done this many times and I know that there are certain books of the Bible when you're reading through the Bible in a year that you just, you just read it and you go, okay, good, I got that done. You check off the box and you move on and you, I mean, an hour later, you don't know what you read. So even those of us who, who know these books at some, in some way, what do we really know them? Just because we've read them at some point, have we, really incarnate, have we really incarnated those words into our hearts? Because think about it. Every book of the Bible is there for a purpose. God in His providence made sure that His church put the right books into the canon of Scripture. And He made no mistake. He inspired all of them through His Holy Spirit. And they're very different. I mean, I will admit, as a, as a preacher, I will admit it is so much easier for me to read the Gospel of Mark than it is for me to read the book of Nahum, right? It's just, it, for various reasons, one is easier than the other. One is more enjoyable than the other. But they're both the Word of God. And so if I, if I just read Mark over and over again, and Acts, and, and Philippians, and Ephesians, and my other favorite books, if I just do that over and over again, what am I missing that God wants me to know? What aspects of God's character? What instruction for life? What, what changes to my own character could happen if I really learned these books and applied them? And I'm not going to promise you that in this study you'll know these books well enough to get up and teach a Bible study yourself. But what I'm going to try to do is cover each of them in one or two successive nights. And uh, the ones I've chosen are, are books that, in my opinion, most Christians rarely, if ever, read or hear about. Uh, my opinion is, if you ask the average Christian, no matter how long they've been in church, what is Habakkuk about? What is Second Peter about? They wouldn't have a clue. So those are the ones we're going to cover. Tonight, we're going to start with Ecclesiastes. Now, the schedule you see before you, this is... What I put together, you know the old saying, right? If you want to hear God laugh, tell Him your plans. So this is, this is the way I see the rest of the year shaking out. The ones in red are, are times that I know I'm going to be out, and Alan's going to take up the mantle for me. Uh, the only time I know of we're not going to have a meeting uh, is August 4th and November 24th. So, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book of the Bible. First of all, where does that title come from? The opening verse of the book of Ecclesiastes says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That word, the preacher, is a Hebrew word, koheleth. I assume I'm pronouncing it correctly. Koheleth means the leader of the assembly. The Greek version of that Hebrew word is Ecclesiastes. Some of you know that the word ekklesia is the Greek word for assembly or church. 
So that's why the most English translations call him the teacher or the preacher. By the way, I, I had Sharon bring over our pew Bibles because we're going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight, and it's a lot easier if you read the same version I do, and that's the ESV. So if she gave you one of those, feel free to use it. Um, so that's where the name comes from. Ecclesiastes means the preacher, basically. Who was this preacher we're talking about? We don't know. Tradition says it was Solomon, the, the son of David. And for hundreds of years, if you would have asked any Christian or any Jew, they would have said, Solomon, king of Israel, wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, but he's never named. Doesn't mean he didn't write it, but let me point out a couple of things. Number one, you look at the opening words, the opening verse of the book of Proverbs, for instance. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Sounds kind of similar, but he names himself in that one. In Ecclesiastes, the name Solomon is never mentioned. I'll give you another thing. Those who are experts in Hebrew, which full disclosure, I am not. I made a C in Hebrew in seminary. I don't, I'm not ashamed to tell you. Not my best subject. But experts in Hebrew will tell you the style of Hebrew that this book is written in did not exist when Solomon was alive. Now, we've all, probably when we were in high school, maybe, uh, saw Old English, right? Maybe you, you, if, you ever, if you've never done it, just look it up online. Uh, read a document that was written 700, 800 years ago in English, and you'll think, well, I can't even read this. this. They've got F's instead of S's. You know, They've got all these words that we don't use anymore. Language changes over time. And so a Hebrew expert can look at the text of Ecclesiastes and say, and say this was not written 900 years before Jesus. That's when Solomon was alive. It was written two or 300 years before Jesus. And so they say Solomon could not have written this. So what do we do with that? I mean, when you read that first verse, it says he was the son of David and he was king in Jerusalem. Later on, it talks about him having great power, great wealth. It talks about him being a person who was very wise and people came coming to listen to him. That all sounds like Solomon. So there's two basic theories that I've read that kind of that try to resolve this conflict. One theory is that the author, the preacher, was someone who was a governor of Jerusalem, probably appointed by the Persians, because that's who ran Israel in the time two or three hundred years before Jesus, who was descended from David. And so that way, technically, everything he says is true. He is king in Jerusalem. He is a son of David. That's one theory. He's just this unknown person. We just know him as the preacher. We don't know his name. The other theory, and this is the one I like, is that these are the words of Solomon himself, but they were never written down. They were kept alive through the scribes through the centuries. That was their full-time job, is keeping the Word of God alive. Through oral tradition, and then finally sometime two or three hundred years before Christ, one of those scribes wrote this down, said this needs to be written so that everyone can read it, not just us scribes. Either way, whatever you believe, this narrator calls himself the preacher, and that's how we should refer to him. That's who wrote the book. Ultimately, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So whoever the human author is, it is the Word of God. So seven things to look for in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is unlike any other book of the Bible. It is maybe the most depressing book in the Bible, although Job will give it a run for its money, I think, right? 
But Ecclesiastes, Job ends on a hopeful note, right? Ecclesiastes never really does. Um, it's interesting, when I was studying this, I read several different commentaries, and one of them said, well, this is pessimism literature. Turns out that's an actual thing. Back in the Middle, in the Middle East, in the ancient world, there was an actual genre, right? You go to your library, do you want a mystery novel? Do you want uh, something about politics? No, 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 give me some pessimism literature. You could actually do that. They didn't have libraries, but you get my point. That was an actual genre of literature. And I don't, I don't know any of these other books, but they say they're incredibly depressing. They, they say things like, life is so hard, the person who dies young is better off than the person who lives a long life. You know, and might as well just end it all because there's no hope for life. And so one scholar says, well, that's what Ecclesiastes is. It falls into that same category, only it's, it shows us there is a path forward. But either way, you read the book of Ecclesiastes and you see this is not a happy book. This is not a cheerful book. This is not one of those books that you see a lot of people uh, posting quotes from or, or bumper stickers or T-shirts. Um, it is obviously the work of an older man. In fact, in a way, you can kind of see him age as the book progresses. The book starts with him talking about youthful idealism and all his plans for life, and here's how I'm going to make my life meaningful. And by the end, he's talking about how hard it is to be old. There's a third feature, and that's the word vanity. Now, other translations may say meaningless, but the word we're going to see in just a moment, the book opens with the words meaningless, meaningless, vanity, vanity, because... And it's using a word that literally means mist or vapor. So you think about how you, you squirt a, a spray bottle and you see that mist in the air and then it's gone. And that's what he says life is like. Life is like a mist. Life is like a vapor. I just realized I'm a liar because I brought my NIV. So I'm going to use one of these. <laughs> yeah, so vanity. It's this idea that, that life is short and life is hard. Uh, there's, the word, there's the phrase, under the sun, is repeated many times. Uh, this, have you ever heard people say, there's nothing new under the sun? That came from this book. That came from the book of Ecclesiastes. Like so many of our English idioms and sayings, it comes from Scripture, and most people who say that phrase don't even know it. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, what it means is, in this world, this is how things are. And notably, the author of, of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, he doesn't know of another world. In fact, he seems to think there is no world beyond this one. We'll get into that in a moment. Uh, number five. He, he talks about two different ways to see the world. At times he'll say, I have seen, and he'll talk about something he has witnessed in this world. This is how I've seen the world operates. But then he'll say, but I perceive. So that's him saying, here's what I've learned based on what I've seen in this life. Number six, there is joy in this book in spite of all I've said. The scholars have pointed out there are six refrains. A refrain is, is a theme that somebody keeps coming back to over and over again, like the chorus of a song. Right? And the refrain of Ecclesiastes, and I've got your, the, the, ver, the references there in, under number six if you want to look them up. But the refrain that he keeps coming back to is, enjoy what you have. 
Life is hard. Don't waste your time worrying about why life is hard. Don't waste your time wishing you'd been given a different life. Don't waste your time wondering what tomorrow is going to be like. Instead, just enjoy the things God has given you. If God's given you a wife, love her. If God's given you kids, enjoy them. If God gives you good food, good wine, have fun with those. If God's given you work to do, enjoy the work of your hands. This is your lot, he seems to say. It's good advice. Don't waste your life wishing you had something else when you've already been given things to enjoy. Now, number seven, there is joy, but there is no hope in the book of Ecclesiastes. Be thankful that the Bible is not just Ecclesiastes, right? Because this doesn't give us any hope of a life beyond this one. As you read Ecclesiastes, in fact, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the gospel and you're familiar with the promises of God in the New Testament, you'll find yourself many times wanting to interrupt the preacher and say, yeah, but, okay, I agree with you. What you're saying is true, but you're not telling the whole story. That's because he didn't know the whole story. We need the gospel. Until the gospel comes along, the Ecclesiastes is not complete. I hope that that doesn't sound like heresy to y'all. But the truth is, the, old, the, the gospel is what answers the questions and the paradoxes that Ecclesiastes leaves us with. So, I will give you a chance to ask questions at the end. I don't promise to know any answers, but I'll give you a chance to ask questions. Let's walk through the book together. So let's, work, let's read the first 11 verses. Chapter 1, verse 11, 1 through 11. I've given you a spot if you want to take notes. You sure can. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. It's like the, the earth is a circuit. Just the same things happen over and over again. Verse 7, he says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Now that's beautiful. It's poetry, but it's brutal. That's some brutal truth that you just read there. And this is the world as this man sees it. And, and I, I say this is one of the prime examples of the importance of knowing the whole Bible. When I talk in my series on Sunday mornings about reading Scripture in context, and one of the things I said was, okay, it's, it, you've got to know the verses around the verse you're looking at, but it's also important to know what the rest of Scripture says. This is example A. Can you imagine if someone had never read the Bible before, knew nothing about Christianity, and someone gave them a copy of Ecclesiastes and said, okay, read this and you'll understand. Well, they'd be lost, literally. Because this gives us no hope. And yet, from an earthly standpoint, it's truth. So let's go on. Uh, chapter 1, actually, actually chapter 2. 
So this, there are three sections to the book of Ecclesiastes, and the first section, chapters 1 through 3, is almost like a diary. The preacher is saying, let me tell you about my efforts to find meaning in life. So in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. And I won't read the whole passage, but he just basically lists all the things he did. Imagine, this is a guy who's king of a nation. He's got lots of wealth. There is nothing stopping him from having whatever he wants. Most people, probably almost all men especially, would say, that's the life I want. To have, I'm in, I'm in charge of my life. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm king. I've got limitless funds, so I can afford any experience I want. And this guy does it all. He mentions Wine, enjoying the finest wine. He, he mentions achievements. I, I, I poured myself into my work. I built things. I, I accomplished stuff. He mentions wealth. Okay, so I invested. I, I increased my wealth. I increased my fortune. He mentions entertainment. I hired men and women singers to come in and entertain me. He mentions sex. He talks about concubines. Concubines upon concubines. Again, that sounds like Solomon, doesn't it? Although certainly he wasn't the only one. And at the end of it all, he says, it was like chasing after the wind. And isn't that a, a great metaphor? Now, I've never chased wind before, but I would imagine that it's fun for a little while, and then eventually you go, well, this is getting me nowhere. And that's what the preacher says. It's like to try to find meaning in life through pleasure. It won't get you there. So then in chapter 2, verse 12... It says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. He says, so since pleasure didn't work, I decided I would become as wise as I possibly could. Now that sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? Surely this, surely chasing after wisdom. You know, there's a whole book in the Bible, Proverbs, about that. Surely that's going to result in joy. That's going to result in meaning. But look at verse 16. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. He said, you know, no matter how wise I became, I knew I'm going to die someday anyway. And maybe a couple of generations will remember me, but then eventually I'll be forgotten. No matter what I do, I'll be forgotten. So then he goes to chapter 3, and, and this is maybe the most familiar passage in the book of Ecclesiastes, thanks to a, a song back in the 60s. Uh, for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up when it's planted. Some of y'all are singing it in your head right now, aren't you? If you're of a certain age. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. The point is not to try to take those apart and go, well, what's the time to hate? Is that No, that's not what this is about. All this is saying is that life has its moments and every season of life has its purpose. Enjoy each season of life for what it is. Don't waste your time wishing it was something else. When you're young, don't wish you were older because then people would respect you. 
When you're old, don't wish you were younger because then people would be attracted to you. That's foolishness. Just enjoy every season of life for what it is. And then verse 11. This is my personal, if I had to pick out one verse of Ecclesiastes, this is it. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What is he saying? When I used to read this, I used to think, what are you saying? Oh, well, we long for heaven. He's, he's put this desire for heaven in our hearts. But the book of Ecclesiastes never talks about an afterlife. I think what it's saying is we have this desire to know God, to know the eternal. We're all born with that. You know, St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. That's the, that's the human situation. That's true. And the problem is, as the, the preacher is saying, you've put this eternity into our hearts, and yet we can't fulfill it because we can't figure out what God's up to. We can't know God. This is a, this is a verse that I go back to over and over again because it explains the dilemma of humanity and, and why so many people can be so incredibly sad when they have the whole world at their fingertips because there's a hole in their hearts that only God can fill and He hasn't filled it yet. So the second section, that's the first section. Life is hard. I tried, I tried to find fulfillment. I had all the resources in the world to do it and it didn't work. So then the second section, chapters 4 through 10, is a lot like Proverbs because it's just random sayings of wisdom. There's not really a, a, a plot or a narrative. It's just he keeps telling us, this is what I've learned about life. In the course of all these days, here's what I've learned about life. And let me just cover some of the, the things he says. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So that's just a beautiful way uh, of using, I mean, several different metaphors. The idea of if you're attacked, it's better to have a couple of guys with you. Uh, if you're cold, it's better to huddle up with one or two other people than be alone. If you're, if you're, tying a rope together. You'd rather have several cords than one cord. I mean, there's all these different, if you're working, six hands are better than two. All these metaphors to say life wasn't meant to be lived alone. Life wasn't meant to be lived in isolation. Friendship is important. We don't talk about that a lot. To us, that sounds too touchy-feely, and yet it is in the scriptures over and over and over again that God meant us for community with one another. How much time, and I'm talking to myself because I'm guilty of this often, how much time do we spend moving beyond surface level relationships? Where yeah, I know your first name and I know maybe a couple of facts about you so we can make small talk. Moving beyond that to where I actually have three or four good friends who know everything about me, who I know would be there at the drop of a hat. How much time do we spend doing that? This. This and many other parts of the Bible tell us that's the way to live. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Here's another random saying of wisdom. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What was the house of God in, in this day? It was the temple. Probably the second temple 
that that uh, uh, Zerubbabel built, not the one Solomon did. He says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Now, verse 3, if you took it out of context, it's still a good saying, right? A fool comes with many words. I mean, the more you talk... The, lo- the more likely you are to say something stupid. But in context, what it's saying is, when you go into the presence of God, be reverent. Make sure your heart is right. Because you're not there for you. You're there for Him. Which leads to the question, this is something, again, we as Christians don't think about very often. We have this consumer mindset when it comes to church. And so we go to church thinking, okay, what am I going to get? Is the preacher's sermon going to be interesting? Are they going to sing songs I like or songs I don't like? Are the pews going to be comfy? Is the AC going to be too hot, too cold? We're thinking about our experience instead of, is my heart ready for worship? And granted, we live in a day of grace. We know God's not going to strike us with a lightning bolt just because we came in thinking about the football game or you know, the election or what we're going to eat for lunch. But isn't it better to enter the presence of God with a heart that's right and a, and a mind that's focused on Him? I think that's what, verse, uh, what chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 is about. Look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And, and he, he could write in parentheses, trust me, I know. Because this was a man of great wealth, and yet it didn't bring him happiness. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Verse 12 is interesting because it sounds like a king on his throne who looks at the guy who's doing the the who's mowing his yard, who's you know plowing his field, or tending his horses, who makes just enough to live, and he looks at that guy and says, "Now that's the life. Boy, I wish I lived like him. I'd sleep good at night. All this wealth, all it's done is make me stressed out and anxious. But he works hard and and has enough to live on and." goes to bed, good at night. The point is, money alone never really satisfies. Please understand, nowhere in the Bible does it say that money is evil itself. You know, the, the common misconception is that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. First Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all evil. So money itself is neither good nor bad. Money is a tool. This is, this is the way I put it. This is kind of a funky little uh, analogy I came up with. It's like, if you tried to eat your barbecue grill, it wouldn't satisfy you. The, the grill is meant to, as a tool to give you things that may satisfy, but the grill itself won't satisfy. Money in itself does not satisfy. So understand that wealth does not satisfy. Okay, I, I probably won't use that illustration again. But anyway, there you go. Chapter 7, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. True story. I did a funeral once, and the deceased's daughter, 
you know, I always ask, did, did they have a favorite scripture? Is there something you would like me to preach on? You should, I mean, nine times out of 10, they say, no, just let the Lord lead you. This woman said, I want you to preach on Ecclesiastes 7.2. I had to look it up. I didn't have it memorized. I thought, okay. And so this is what I preached on. And, and I understood her point. She knew that the people who came to her dad's funeral needed to know that the service wasn't for him. It was for them. They needed to hear the Word of God. What the preacher here is saying is, we think it's better to go to a party than to a funeral because one of them's a lot more fun. We think it's better to go to a ball game than to the house of someone who just lost a loved one and just sit with them and weep. But actually the opposite is true. It's not saying there's anything sinful about enjoying yourself. The Bible talks about feasting all the time as a good thing. In fact, the Israelites were commanded to feast several times a year. But it's talking about don't avoid this, the being in the presence of those who are mourning. Number one, they need it, but you need it. It's a reminder. Someday you will die. You need to be reminded of your own mortality. And you need to re be reminded of how much we need the Lord. Okay, verse 10 in chapter 7. I love this one. This is, this is one, if you want a verse that you, can, you should put on a mug, because this is a verse for our age. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Because how many of us sit around and say, golly, it was so much better in the 80s, in the 60s, in the 50s? You know what? I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I guarantee you people in the 50s were saying, golly, I sure missed the 30s. I missed the 20s. I missed turn of the century. Every age says the same thing. And that's, that's some wisdom right there, verse 10. Okay, chapter 9, verses 3 through 6. We've got two more, and then we're going to move on to the third section. Chapter 9, 3 through 6. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. This is one of those passages that we as Christians want to go, yeah, but... But the preacher didn't know about the but. All he knew was everybody he'd ever known who died was gone. As far as he knew, he'd never see them again. They went into the ground. And from what he could tell, evil people went into the ground, good people went into the ground, everybody in between went into the ground, and the same thing happened to them. Their body ceased to exist. Ultimately, you, know, you dig up that plot in a couple of years, and there's nothing there. So his, his conclusion was, death comes to us all, and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, that's a grim thing to think, but it's important to know it's important to confront the fact that death is real, right? We don't want to talk about that, but it's real. Then verses 7 through 10, and then we'll move on to the next section. So this is, this, is one of, this is one of the refrains I talked about. This is the one I like the best. I think it's the most eloquent one. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. See, that's one of those cases where I think that word vain means fleeting, not meaningless. He's saying your life is short, so for whatever days you have, enjoy the life 
with the wife that's got, that God's given you. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, we have the yeah, but. Because he ends it up by saying, yeah, enjoy good food, enjoy good wine, enjoy time with your wife, enjoy your work, enjoy the things God's given you. Because one of these days you're going to go to the grave and there's no fun there. And we want to go, yeah, but. But he didn't know about the but. Up till then, we can read that as good advice. When we get to that last part, we go, okay, but there's more. There's more. You just got to keep reading. You just got to keep listening. So the third section is the conclusion of the book. And I just want to look, read two passages. One of them's a little bit long, but it's so poetic. It's so, it's so well done. You just need to see it. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Now see if you know what he's trying to describe here. He, he says it in poetic language. It's all metaphor, but see if you can figure out what he's describing. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Have you gotten it yet? He's talking about old age. The keepers are few. Uh, the strong men are bent. The, the grinders cease because they're few. You don't have any teeth anymore, right? The windows are dimmed. You can't see very well. The strong men are bent. You, your, your joints are aching, and so you can't stand up straight anymore. And the verse 4 says, And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird. Anybody, as they get older, find you wake up at times you'd rather not? Yeah, that's, that's part of life too. I'm already experiencing that. Hallelujah. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terror, terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners grow about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And you're all going, stop it! Why, why, is, it, why, why is he saying all this? The whole point he's making is back in verse 1. Serve God while you're young. And that's not to say, listen, there are stories in scriptures of men and women who served God when they were beyond 80 and served Him well. Moses is an example. Noah's five or six hundred years old for that matter. I mean, there are many, there, there's no excuse for saying, oh, well, I've reached a certain age, I can't serve the Lord anymore. His point is, don't wait until then to start. And I, I remember being in college, we were part of the Baptist Student Union, I remember a, a woman doing a, a presentation for us once. I've never forgotten this. I was 18, 19 years old, so I've remembered it a long time. And she, she, she told a story. She, she portrayed a different person. She said, I was young like you, and people challenged me to serve the Lord with all my heart. And I said, yeah, someday, but I've got to get through with my education first. And then she moved on to the next stage of life. And yeah, I will give my life to the Lord, but right now I'm just establishing my career. And then later on it was, well, I just got married. And then it was, well, my kids are young. I've got to take care of them. And then it was, 
Well, my career is, is really in a busy stage right now and I, I need to make money while I can. And, and on and on and on it went. Meanwhile, the whole time, she's got this long-stemmed red rose in her hand. And as she's talking, she's peeling off petals and dropping them on the floor. And she gets to the end of her presentation and she says, and then finally I was retired and all the kids had moved away. Not even the grandkids were close by. Um, and finally I said, Lord, I'm ready to give my life to you. And she holds up this bare stem and says, but I had nothing left to give him. And again, you tell that story to a young person, right? You don't, you don't do that at your senior adult dinner. <laughs> because you don't want them to think, okay, you've got no use in the kingdom, which isn't true. I'm glad I pastor a church full of men and women in their 70s and 80s and some even in their 90s who are still serving God with all their heart. But it's good. it was good for me at 18 years old to hear, give the Lord your whole life while you've got your life ahead of you. That's the point chapter 12, verses 1 through 7 is making. So if you want to write something in a graduation card, <laughs> here you go. Boy, they'll love you for that. So the conclusion, the whole conclusion of the book is verses 13 and 14 of 12. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The conclusion of the matter is fear God and keep His commandments. Now, let me ask you, who does that perfectly in this room? I don't. I never have. I don't see any potential that in this life I ever will. So the book of Ecclesiastes ends on a holy note, but not a hopeful one. So I, I don't know that I'll do this with every one of these books, but with Ecclesiastes, I have to do it. Jesus comes along and provides the but, right? Yeah, but... And I want to give you those. Jesus says, yes, life is vanity, but a redeemed life is meaningful. Life apart from God, there's no purpose. There's no hope. There's no meaning. But in Jesus, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus. That means you're not born with a purpose. You have a purpose when you come into Christ. You're born again with a purpose. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One of my, that may be my favorite verse in the Bible because it means that every life matters. Every life has a purpose. Once you come to Christ, you find that purpose. And there are things that God prepared you for, custom designed you for, to accomplish them. Life is vanity, but a redeemed life is meaningful. Number two... Jesus says, yes, God set eternity in our hearts, but Jesus fulfills that desire. Ephesians 3.12 says, in Him, that's Jesus, in Him and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The preacher said, yeah, God set eternity in our hearts, but we can't tell what God's up to. Jesus says, oh, yes, you can. Through me, you can. Through me, you can enter into His presence. You can, you can know Him better every single day of your life. Number three. Jesus says, yeah, death comes to us all, but Jesus is the answer. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Remember, he said those words to the sister of Lazarus right before he raised that man from the dead. So don't you wish you could go back in time and, and sit down with the preacher and say, don't worry. There is resurrection. There is something better. 
There is something after this life and Jesus is going to make a way for you just like he's made a way for me. And then number four, we can't perfectly fear God and keep his commands. It's impossible for us to fulfill Ecclesiastes 12, 13, but Jesus has already done that for us. Second Corinthians 5, 21, he, meaning God, made him who know no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The answer, the question you'll have to answer at the end of time is not what did you do and how did you, what did you accomplish? But do you know my son? That's all it takes. It's what he did for us. It's what he did for us that matters. And aren't you glad the gospel comes and answers the dilemmas of Ecclesiastes? So why is this in the Bible? I think it's in the Bible to tell us don't waste your life chasing after things because it doesn't work. And it's there to set up the stage for how desperately we need the gospel. Any questions? Thoughts? Okay. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would not waste our time chasing after things that don't satisfy, that we would enjoy the blessings you've given us while we have them. And we give you thanks for them, that our enjoyment of them would be an act of worship because we give you the glory. But Lord, most of all, help us to remember that you are our hope. Let us find our hope in you. And let us communicate that hope, that good news to the world. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray all these things. Amen.